Feeling better? Looking better. Making life better. It's Life Tips. Life Tips. Life Tips. We'll explore the latest innovations, introduce you to the latest products, and bring you the tips from experts and environmental pioneers to help you lead a better life. Life Tips. Life Tips. Making your life smarter, better, faster, wiser. Here are your hosts. Welcome back to the Life Tips Show, everyone. I'm here with Richard. Richard, welcome. Thank you. You're the author of Mindware, Tools for Smart Thinking. Before we start powering up the tools, no pun intended, tell us a little bit about your, your background and your interest in smart thinking. Well, I'm a cognitive psychologist and a social psychologist, and um, I've studied reasoning for my whole career. And early on, I got interested in the kinds of errors that people make in reasoning, partly because they're interesting and partly because they're revealing about how we could reason better. And I began to realize more and more that scientific concepts that are very powerful for people who work in the technical field can also be extremely useful in everyday life. Spot on. And this correlation between some of what you've studied, cost-benefit analysis, sunken cost, opportunity cost, I mean, now I'm getting a refresher as I look over your bio of some terms that I use, uh, learned about in my collegiate and in graduate school days. The correlation between life betterment and these scientific tools, now that's a fascinating stretch. Where did you find this correlation between improving life and this statistical, scientific approach? Well, after I realized our scientific concepts that can help people with a lot of the problems I was seeing, I started a program seeing if I could teach people these concepts in a way that they could be used. Now, what's very interesting is that 20th century psychology was pretty sure you can't teach abstract concepts in such a way that they can apply across a huge range of domains. The notion was that you have to teach a rule over a particular domain of events, and they just don't generalize. So I started the research saying, well, you know, probably nothing will happen. And then I was astonished to see how easy it is to teach some really very powerful concepts uh, so that people really got them ready to hand when they need them. Typically, science and math is, is aiming at prediction. Do you feel that Prediction is something that you browse upon in your book and using tools to help predict behavior in the future? Yeah, a lot of what I study is prediction. How can we make better predictions? One kind of principle that's tremendously useful is the law of large numbers, which just says more evidence is better than less evidence. Slightly more technical way to say it is samples of population values approach true population values as a function of their size. And the kind of thing I mean is the output of the widget factory in Gary, Indiana. Uh, How how can I predict what the typical average amount by knowing one or two days production, or maybe it's hens in Cincinnati laying eggs, or maybe it's an athlete that I'm trying to recruit possibly for for my team and how much evidence should I need? Uh, all large numbers tell me more is better, but exactly how much better? And the law of large numbers is useful for that too. 
Tell us about framing problems, which is perhaps some of the interesting aspects of how you approach the world. Why is framing problems so important to finding the right answers? Well, let's take an example with this concept of the law of large numbers. If I ask the following question, I say, there is a town with two hospitals, one has about 15 births per day, and one has about 45 births per day. In which hospital do you think there would be more days during the year in which 60% or more of the babies born would be boys? And about half the people you ask this to will say, oh, it shouldn't make any difference. And of the remainder, about half say it would be the larger hospital and half say it would be the smaller hospital. But in fact, we can know for a lead pipe cinch it's going to be the smaller hospital. And if you think about it, if you frame this problem, in the proper way, we're talking about a sample of population value of some kind. In this case, it's uh, the proportion of boy births. We know what that proportion is in the population as a whole. We know it's 50-50. And if we think about a sample, then we can realize that sample is going to depart far from the 50% value, the fewer the cases. And if you doubt that, try five births per day versus 500 births per day. <laughs> it's wow. going to be 60%. The, the, the best you're going to do for an estimate is 60%, three and two. But in a very large sample, you're not going to depart very far from that. So uh, predicting the future often means predicting what the, the population value of some kind, the mean or the proportion would be. And framing the problem right makes us realize when we need more evidence. Do you think about numbers with most decisions you make personally? Do you try to really find answers in a different way than most of us do? Well, I think most scientists uh, over-numeralize <laughs> as far as the general population is concerned. I do put numbers on things. I put probabilities on things that most people would just say, well, this will probably happen. And I may say, well, there's about a 60% chance of that. I think sometimes that can be quite justified, still sticking with this law of large numbers idea, I sometimes will see that just automatically that I've got too little evidence to make a judgment. So I know that a single play in football is going to tell me very little about the talent of the individual player or the team as a whole. A whole game isn't all that great. I mean, there's the idea that on any given Sunday, any team in the NFL can defeat any other team in the NFL. So we understand that a lot of evidence is necessary to come to a conclusion about relative skills of the two. And we can actually put numbers on that, and partly that's because the data are so clear. The data come with numbers. I mean, how many touchdowns, how many completed passes, what was the score? But in a lot of cases in everyday life, questions that are very important, we can't see the variability that exists there. So we can't put a number on it, and we can't realize how much evidence we need. My favorite example of that is that we tend to assume we've learned a lot about people from the half-hour unstructured interview, which is a natural part of selecting students, selecting employees, selecting people for officer training. The truth is that interview is almost worthless. The degree of predictability, to use the numbers here, if you're trying to pick which is the better of two candidates, 
you flip a coin, you'll get 50-50. If you rest everything on the interview, you'll go up to about 53% chance, which is pretty sad, especially when you consider that we often have a lot of solid information that you can give numbers to, the grade point average of a student, ability scores of a person, job ratings on previous employment. Uh, and if you use the data that's in the folder, you can often get up to a 65, 75% chance of picking the right person for the role. So yeah, you can put numbers on things that we don't naturally put numbers on if you frame them right and think about how good a predictor uh, your sample is. Let's stay with that example of predicting somebody's ability to perform on the job. There's a subscription of a wonderful book that I've read that describes the process more of asking some critical questions when you're interviewing somebody, four to be exact. One is, what are your career goals? Another one is, what are you freakishly good at doing? Another one is, what are you not good at doing? And a final one of saying, if I were to call your boss, you know, three of your bosses, what would they say about you and how would they rate your performance on a scale of one to ten? The premise is by asking those four questions, we can learn a lot. And I just want to take the first question, which I find interesting, and I want to see how you spin this into your mathematical mind of probability prediction of performance, right? The first question is really interesting. And, and by the way, these four questions you ask before you corrupt their minds and tell them anything about the job. Another interesting mm-hmm. point about this. So the first question was, you know, what are your career goals? This question is aimed at trying to see if their vision of the future, what, where they want to go with their career, aligns with what you as an employer or what the job description is for them in that role. In other words, is the description of what they're going to actually be doing every day fit with what their career goals and will it help them advance their career goals? The thinking behind that question is, is quite interesting. And I'm sure you can understand it, which is if, look, you, even if somebody's matching up with retro data of GPA and job ratings of what they've done in the past, what really matters is where that person wants to go in the future, right? right. And whether this job will help them get there. Can you talk about that a little bit in, in connection with, again, this prediction element of using tools for smart thinking about candidates? Actually, I, I love that interview protocol you just gave. Who, who does that? Who, where did you get that? It's a book called, I think it's called Who. I will, I will get the information to you while you're talking. I'll, I'll look it up and just tell you the author of that. It's a wonderful book. It's been very helpful for me, very, very interesting. Right. Well, I'm very glad you brought up the general point. It's entirely sad the fact that that interests me a lot specifically. But you actually can make good use of an interview, which is what you've illustrated with this example what psychologists who study this kind of thing recommend, you work up an interview which asks questions like the very telling ones you just gave and other questions that you know are relevant to the particular job. You create a structured interview like that, and then you give the same interview to everybody, and that's crucial because then you can do the comparison. Otherwise, you know, if, I, if people just have to casually have an interview, say, yeah, where'd you go to school? Uh, Tufts. No kidding. Tufts. I went to Tufts. What'd you think of old Dr. Powell? Oh, terrible. So we're off and running. <laughs> I've got a friend already. But if I don't find something like that, that things are a little awkward and there are silences and there's such a chance element to what goes on in an interview. And 
a structure like the kind you're talking about and the kind I'm talking about reduces very substantially that chance component and increases the likelihood you'll get really informative data coming out of it and, crucially, data that you can use to compare in a systematic way, put a number if you want, across people. The book, by the way, is called Who? At the A Method for Hiring. It's by Jeff Smart and Randy Street. Wonderful book and very helpful. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. But let's go back to the concept of tools for betterment here and, uh, and, and, and the focus perhaps of, of your book in, in at least some ways. What kind of tools are there out there to help us think smarter, better, faster, and wiser? Well, I focus on four general types of tools. One is scientific method, uh, how to make systematic observations, how to do experiments, And one thing that I try to get across in the book is how much more we can do in the way of experiments in our professional lives and in our personal lives than we do, and how much better the experimental data are as compared to the merely observational data. The second type of thing is statistical, like I was just talking about, the law of large numbers. And then one of my other favorites, uh, which we might talk about, is the the principle of regression to the mean, which is the very interesting idea that extreme scores are unlikely. And that means that the next time you observe the person or the animal or the factory or whatever that's gotten an extreme score, it's probably not going to be all that extreme the next time around. That's just because extreme scores tend to be rare. And a third kind of concept are those I get from economics And that's the main ones I push in the book are the standard tools of microeconomics, cost-benefit analysis, avoidance of sunk cost traps, and attention to opportunity costs. And then the final thing is the psychological tools. And those are very broad, but they come to center for me, the ones that are most useful in everyday life, on what I think is one of the, the major messages of psychology over the last 150 years, and that is we just keep shrinking the amount of mental life that's conscious as opposed to unconscious. And that's unnerving in some ways. On the other hand, it opens possibilities for us that are not there if you don't realize that. I have lots of questions for you. Let's go to the statistical methods and this this sort of law of, of larger numbers and then the principle of regression. Here's an interesting observation that I wanted to ask you about. And it's where data leaps off the page and potentially where foul play in this case is at work. At Writer Access, another company that I that I own, uh, we have writers apply and they, they need to take tests once we screen them and look at samples and their profiles to enter this marketplace that connects 16,000 customers with 10,000 writers. They need to take some, some tests. So we have some online tests that they take. And every once in a while, we'll get some writers from, you know, in this case, Africa that, that applied with fake names and fake everything to make them look like they're U.S. citizens, which is our requirement. And in this case, one writer tried to open up five different accounts with five different names, allowing them to have access to some of the crowd orders five different ways, potentially increasing their probability that they could get work assignments by opening these fake accounts. But but when they applied, they took the test, but because they had 
taken the test once and, and done okay on it. They saw all the test answers. So the other four applications had they scored 40, 44 out of 44 questions they got right. They, they, were, they were not smart enough to like fake some of the answers being wrong, if you could imagine. I see. Do you see patterns like this that are interesting to you and that can, you know, throwing out the means and this sort of principle of regression, you know, towards the mean, do you tend to want to throw out the odd ends of surveys like I described to get at, at the smart truth? Well, that's for sure. You know, I don't actually talk about that in the book, but it's a very interesting principle. What do you, if you're trying to estimate a population value, what do you do with super extreme scores? Mm-hmm. Because they can really distort your estimate of the proportion or the mean or whatever it is that you're after. And it's actually a matter of controversy for a lot of reasons. Sometimes throwing out data of any kind, that seems like cheating. On the other hand, there's a, oh, in psychology, there's a particular type of measure that we do a lot, and that's reaction time. How long does it take a person to respond to some stimulus? And those reaction times are characterized by, every now and then there's, people have glitches. I mean, they just, instead of operating the way they usually do, something goes wrong, and, and the reaction time careens way out of line with everything else for the person. Well, you really don't want that to be taken into consideration if you want to get an accurate perception of the person. So there are rules about how you can throw out extreme scores, how extreme they have to be to do that, and so on. But you certainly certainly do often have to consider how extreme something is and how damaging it can be to your estimate if you use it. On the microeconomic approach, could you refresh everyone's memory, including my own, on cost-benefit analysis and, and this attention to opportunity costs, which you describe, and how you play that into the book? Well, I'm, I'm going to start by saying uh, economists are a different species uh, from the rest of us. I mean, they're really framing the world constantly in different terms than we are. They're behaving differently from the way the rest of us do. And I'm all on their side. In general, the ways in which economists are different from the rest of us, I think they're right. Cost-benefit analysis is generally a useful tool, even if it's just that, shall I get an Amana refrigerator or a Sub-Zero? And, well, Sub-Zero is a lot more expensive, so the cost and maintenance and so on, and what are the advantages, what are the, what are the benefits I'm getting? Taking five minutes to do that sort of thing will sometimes give you a different and better conclusion than if you just shoot from the hip. And in general, I'd say the more important the decision is, the more important it is to do a cost-benefit analysis. But I have, as a psychologist, I have a little bit of a qualification to what an economist would say, and that is the more important and the more personal the decision is, the more important it is to do the cost-benefit analysis, but then the best the best thing to do is to throw it away or at the very least incubate for a while because we're beginning to learn that some decisions are really better made by the unconscious mind than the conscious mind. We don't have a complete mapping of that yet, but we know even for minor things, for example, if you're having people choose which is the better of two apartments and you have eight attributes, you know, one is better on some than the others, and the others better on others, and so on. 
if you have people read a fair amount of information like that and think about it for eight or ten minutes and then get their judgment of which is better and then compare that to the case where you give them much less time, two or three minutes, and then in the remaining time you fill it up with conscious work that's so difficult that they don't, in a conscious way, they can't be paying any more attention to the, those, that, those apartments, that'll be a better decision. They'll, because the unconscious mind is working on that problem. And the unconscious mind, for some reason, can really respond more holistically to certain kinds of choice problems uh, and come up with a better answer. And that's especially important for important personal decisions. My favorite decision analyst is, for those kinds of problems is Freud, who said in matters of love and work, the unconscious should decide. And I think we have evidence that that's true. And you're tiptoeing into neuroscience here and how we think about problems. Is your book have roots in this approach to neuroscience, the Cartesian dualism particularly, and, and how metaphors and other things can penetrate those fine lines? Well, actually, I, I, I don't take a neuroscience approach at all. I'm not knowledgeable about neuroscience, though I do think about it. I mean, what, what are the brain mechanisms that might be different for consciously assessed problems versus unconscious ones. There's a a very interesting concept of the default state of the nervous system. That is, when we're not doing anything in particular, you know, we're riding the bus, various areas that light up and the ones that are dark are very similar across situations. And they tend to involve thinking about the self, because most of the time when we're not working on an arithmetic problem or uh, some kind of problem that requires conscious thought, we are thinking, musing about ourselves, and we have a particular part of the brain that lights up in that case is the frontal cortex, the part of the brain just behind the forehead. um, I think ultimately neuroscience is going to tell us a lot about what's going on when we're dealing with problems of different kinds, but at the moment, I think, I'd have to say, I don't think there's much in the way of research, neuroscience research, that's pertinent to the kind of thing I'm talking about. Let's take a break, everyone, and come back with Richard answering a very difficult question, namely, how can we warm up the world to statistical and analytical thinking and refresh our sense of value to database decisions? Back in a minute, everyone. Life Tips will be right back after this short break. Introducing Rumble, the smart mobile management system, the first end-to-end mobile platform where you can make real-time app modifications from a point-and-click dashboard. Want to change the design of your app? Point-click, and it's live in real-time. Want to change the ad map of your app? Point-click, and it's live in real-time. Want to change the content mix of your app? Point-click, and it's live in real-time. Power your mobile business with Rumble. Are you ready to rumble? Visit www.rumble.me. 
Reinventing keyword research, simplifying campaign optimization, redefining competitive analysis, SpyFu brings you an entirely new way to find the most profitable keywords for your SEO and PPC campaigns. New tools, new data, and a brand new look. We've streamlined SpyFu so that you can optimize your search engine marketing more efficiently, more accurately, and more intuitively. Visit SpyFu.com, that's S-P-Y-F-U.com, and start downloading your competitors' keywords now. Try it free. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. When you started your business, you first listened to your professors. Now that your business is growing and gaining ground, you only seek out professionals. PPC Professionals, an industry leader for highly optimized search marketing campaigns with over 30 years of combined management experience. Our professional approach to every campaign helps you find every avenue of revenue so that you can not only stay ahead of your competitors, but get a return on your investment and increase your bottom line. PPC Professionals, personal, professional, PPC services. PPCProfessionals.com. And now back to Life Tips. Making your life smarter, better, faster, and wiser. Here are your hosts. Richard, great to have you on the show today. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I left the audience, if humanly possible, hanging on an interesting question. <laughs> and that is your challenge to write a book about this topic and, if you will, warm up the world to statistical and, and analytical thinking and, and refresh our, our sense of value to database decisions. What's your take on that question, and was that a challenge for you? Well, in some ways, yes. In some ways, not. I mean, because I've been seeing the kinds of errors that people make that can be combated by statistical concepts or concepts from methodology of science and so on. So it was easy for me to generate questions that were characteristic of these important errors and easy for me to think of how these concepts might be taught in a way that, that's effective. And I'll tell you one thing that really astonished me. I mean, I, like most psychologists in the world, when I started this, I, I thought I knew that you can't, you can't teach people how to solve problems concrete, real-world problems with an abstract rule. I mean, every psychologist knew that, and I believed it. And it turns out to be wrong. You can teach the law of large numbers, purely abstract way. I mean, sample of population, lifting gumballs out of an urn, figure out how many, what the proportion is of red versus white. Talking about very abstract ways, and then give people problems, real-world problems, lotteries or baseball games or a person's preferences for something. And they can immediately apply that rule taught in a very abstract way, which flew in the face of what people thought they knew and is very encouraging. You can also go the opposite way, and that's striking too. You can give people concrete problems about things they normally think about probabilistically, for instance, 
or things that they think about objective events that they think about with numbers or quantitative thoughts or purely subjective things like your beliefs about someone's traits or about their tastes or preferences, attitudes. You can show the use of the principle in those concrete domains and it generalizes. They jump from one domain to another. Literally, you teach people about lotteries and then ask them questions about sports abilities and they're thinking about it in the right way. They're thinking about it just as you've taught them to in a probabilistic domain. So that, that's been a shock, too. It's a shock to how, how easily you can go top-down, abstract to concrete, and it's been a surprise how easily you can go from the concrete to the abstract. People will generalize very well from a few concrete examples and then use those to go to a totally different kind of problem than the one you taught them about. So that's been... And that's really the rationale for the book, because I can do a lot in brief sessions in the lab or classroom, and I'm doing that, trying to do that in the book. Are the days of gut decisions far behind us in the business world? I don't think so. In fact, I spend some time in the book trying to specify what is the proper use of the gut. (laughs) And when it comes to problem-solving, it's very clear that people can solve some problems better with the unconscious mind than with the conscious mind. So great discoveries in history, people talk about them, and they weren't thinking about the problem consciously. It came out of the blue in a direction they had never consciously recognized. But what's important to know about that, and this is, I say, that one of the absolute most important things that I say in the book, is you can count on the unconscious to do your work for you. But the unconscious is is lazy when it comes to homework. And you need to set it up. Say, here's, dear unconscious, here's the problem. Here's a sketch of what a solution might look like. And then you, whether it's a decision you're trying to make or a problem you're trying to solve, now the unconscious is working for you 24-7. But it's not going to do that if you don't if you don't set it up so any decision of consequence any problem that's important sketch it out for yourself and do the prep work for the unconscious to take over a b testing and multivariate testing you know use science essentially in math to determine the most efficient conversion path i'm sure you're quite familiar with with these concepts i'm talking about do you worry that that science might tarnish our appreciation for design and art? And where do you find the balance between art and science when it comes to both decision-making and using technology and data and science to forge what a web page could look like, which, by the way, might not be too pretty, just so you know, if we followed pure science in the design of web pages? Gee, I'm not... I guess my first reaction is that, well, whatever works. I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I do know the attitude at Google, they have a derisory term for what it is that most companies do when they have to plot some strategy or spell out some kind of tactic that they might pursue. They get the hippo, that is, the highest paid person's opinion. And mm. that's not the way to do things, according to Google. Instead, you do A-B testing. 
uh, and you just let the machine generate a blue border or a red border, whatever, see what works, and experiment all the time on us with huge numbers of subjects. And they go with these randomized experiments come up with. So it, it doesn't bother me, although, and I don't know if this relates to the question you're asking, but I've been told that there are now computer programs which can write classical music that can make people cry <laughs> with its beauty. I mean, that's, I, that does sort of bother me. I don't like the idea of crying because of what some machine did <laughs> mm -hmm. to my emotions. Uh, but if it's, you know, shall I use a red border or a blue border? I mean, I'll design it, let the machine analyze the data and tell me what to do. I'm not sure if you noticed it, but Google actually changed their logo design recently, which I find interesting. And I wonder if they tested that new design or if it hoped to bring a fresh new brand look or if there were legal reasons behind it. Do you have a thought on a decision like that that Google might have made to change their I, look and feel of their brand? I'd lay dollars to donuts that it was a purely empirically determined decision. That is, they were they did the randomized assignment and found out what was best. I have to say I find it a little bit irritating dealing with Google because they're constantly introducing these slight changes. And, you know, my attitude is, like, hey, it wasn't broke, so don't fix it, please. But that's not their motive. Their motive is to generate the most business possible. But the important Google does now has a name, which I hadn't heard until quite recently, which is A-B testing, A slash B testing, which just means find out, do the study, randomly assign, see what happens. And one thing that I found fascinating is I thought more and more about what businesses can do with A-B testing is how much you can test that you wouldn't necessarily think about if you didn't have examples of what people have done. For example, say you're a grocery store or a grocery chain. Should you display goods categorically, you know, soda's in aisle four, pasta's in aisle six. There are other ways to do it. And in Japan, they tend to do things much more holistically. So they have a miso soup section and an Italian food section, which has got spaghetti, it's got tomatoes, it's got Romano cheese, etc. Uh, and you say, might say, well, you know, probably categories work better for us and holistic works better for the Japanese. Not true. Uh, holistic arrangement food in supermarkets is better for the for the retailer. It's better for the customer. It's better for for them because <clears throat> you're going to make an Ita Italian food dinner, and if you get home and oh my god, I haven't got the Romano cheese, McDonald's tonight. So the grocery store has lost the sale of the Romano cheese, and you've paid a price of having a less wholesome meal than you would have had. Or suppose you want to increase the sales of some particular item. Fruits and vegetables are a high profit margin item for grocery stores. And it's a high profit item for the consumer because, of course, fruits and vegetables are better for you than most of what you can find in a supermarket. People have done clever studies like just putting a sign in a cart saying the average person in this store buys $12 worth of whatever it is worth of fruits and vegetables. That increases sales, and this is partly because of the principle that social psychologists 
hold dear, which we can show everywhere, and that's the power of social influence. I mean, I'm going to do what you did just because you did it and without thinking too much about it. Or you can put a sign in the cart saying, put fruits and vegetables in front of cart. Believe it or not, that doubles sales. <laughs> mm. uh, similarly, we can do experiments on ourselves much more than we do. And there are some kinds of questions we're just not going to get the answer to or we'll get a wrong answer to if we don't do it in a systematic, scientific way. So, you know, am, am I better off drinking a cup of coffee in the morning because uh, I'm more productive? Or does that tend to make me jittery? So, I, you know, I'm, unless I systematically flip a coin when I step into the breakfast room, coffee or no coffee, I'm not going to know the answer to that. I mean, because there's too much else that is going to fluctuate if I don't control it, which I can do by the flip of a coin, making sure that everything about today is identical to everything else about tomorrow that's relevant, because I've achieved that by random assignment. Is yoga good for you or not? I mean, does it make you feel physically better? Well, make systematic observations about what you're like on the days you do yoga and what, what you don't, or how about meditation, etc. So there, you can't just rely on observation. One point that I make in the book is that we find it very difficult to see what's associated with what just by casual looking. Do you think there's a cost to disruption, disrupting of our habits and our patterns? Take the grocery store, for example, that you're suggesting should redesign their whole footprint to accommodate a more logical approach. Might they lose business with people that walk in the store and say, what happened to this? I don't like this grocery store anymore. I'm out of here. I'm going to go to the next store. Well, you know, now that you mentioned, I'm sure there's a lot of that. And you just heard me complain about Google. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. Just those grounds. My life was fine. Or they did this. Sometimes you're going to get that kind of complaint. But I think on balance, being systematic about finding things out and then doing what seems to be indicated by the data, you've got to play the odds. You're probably going to be better off. Making the change in the long run. And isn't that the purpose really in the end of the day of your book is to find smarter ways to make decisions and find the best path? Exactly. It's been great having you on the show today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Two final questions for you. How can people get a hold of you, and who would you like to get a hold of you? This book has only been out for a short time. I'd love to hear reactions to the book if people read it or to my talk just now. So I'm, I would love to hear from people, start a dialogue on some of these issues. What do people find interesting or useful? What do they find implausible? Uh, and I'm easy to reach. It's Nisbet, N-I-S-B-E-T-T, at UMich for University of Michigan, .edu. Dr. Nisbet, great having you on today. Thank you. Until next week, everybody, I hope your life's a little smarter, better, faster, and wiser, and more in tune with math and science. Thanks to our fabulous guest today, talking about Mindware, tools for smart thinking. Thanks, everyone. See you next week.
The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.